The rest of you, I'd have you turn in your copies of the Scriptures to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9. Early in my ministry, I led a group of about four dozen college students on a spring break trip to New Orleans. We spent the days doing street evangelism and serving a small local church that was right there in the heart of the French Quarter. And one evening before the sun went down, a group of us visited the Ninth Ward. Most of you remember... Hurricane Katrina in August of 2005. You remember the devastation that washed over New Orleans and especially the Ninth Ward when those levees broke shortly after the storm made landfall. It was like a half-sunken Atlantis. The city was entirely underwater. And as we walked through the Ninth Ward, which was a graveyard of abandoned neighborhoods... Our hosts recounted the post-apocalyptic scene of wading through rancid, torso-deep floodwaters to find shelter in the powerless Superdome. The families huddled together in the arena and the fearful noises that filled a dark stadium after sun went down without any law and order. All around us as we walked, Homes and businesses had been destroyed. Hopes and dreams were destroyed with them. 2,000 died. Nearly a quarter of a million residents were displaced, roughly half the population of the city. Even when we visited several years later, this is five years later or so, even when we visited some years later, the city was still just a shell of itself, and the relief efforts were still ongoing tirelessly. Well, nearing the end of our tour, one of the students turned to me and quietly asked, how could God allow something like this to happen? I appreciated her honesty. And I listened as she tried to work out everything that she was taking in that day. And as we, in, as, as we neared the end of the tour, I asked her, what if that's not the right question to ask? What if it's not the best question? Given what we know about sin and evil in the world, I wonder if a better question might be, why is there anything good in the world at all? Even in the wake of catastrophic destruction, music filled the streets. Neighbors laughed and ate together. A semblance of justice through law and order remained and was being reestablished in the city. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of beliefs gave generously of what little they had to help their neighbor. If the wages of sin is death... and death and sin have spread to all men because all men have sinned... Then how could a city that glories in its debauchery, that glories in its idolatry, much more an entire world that does the same, enjoy anything good at all? Enjoy justice, 
community, music, art, food, family. My humanistic friends might attribute it to the survivalist spirit that's evolved in mankind over time of of man finding ways to sustain his own existence in this dark dog-eat-dog world. We're just resilient bipeds, overcoming evil with good for the survival of the species. But then the question begs itself, what then is evil? And what is goodness that we might have any measurement to even call evil, evil? If we cannot agree on what goodness is, then any talk of evil is nonsense, much less the problem of evil. Now, I want to submit to you that the problem of evil is a distinctly non-Christian problem concerning an imaginary God arising from a human-centered universe. But for the, the problem for Christians isn't ultimately the problem with evil. We know why the world is filled with disease and devastation and death. We know why our loved ones suffer and die from cancer. The problem for the Christian is the problem of goodness. Given the reality of human sin and of God's curse on account of human sin and of how sin and death have spread to all men because all men have sinned, how can there be anything good at all? That is an even greater riddle. If God is, in fact, just. The covenant theology of the Bible gives us the answer. I explained last week how the whole Bible and all of redemptive history revolves around two Adams. A first Adam and a last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two Adams represent two divine covenants. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. In the covenant of works, God committed to give Adam and his offspring eternal life for Adam's obedience or eternal death for his disobedience. Adam disobeyed God, and God cursed his creation as he promised, and death spread to all men, because in Adam all men sinned. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. But God didn't leave Adam and the rest of mankind in Adam destitute of hope. Adam was a type. He was a pattern of one who had come. That's why God's curse was punctuated by the promised covenant of grace. A covenant between God and his elect in which he promises eternal life in Jesus Christ. That serpent-crushing last Adam who merits salvation by his obedience in the covenant of redemption. It's called a covenant of grace because God alone fulfills the terms of the covenant by his son. We come to enjoy its blessings and its benefits, not by any works of our own, but by faith alone of receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. And so the broken covenant of works that God made with Adam formed then the context for God's plan of redemption through the covenant of grace. It's the backdrop of God's plan of redemption. God gave Adam a kingdom through a covenant, and that kingdom ended up cursed because of Adam's sin. Adam no longer had dominion over God's creation. Death did. And because of this, war is the result of the gospel. 
That's what the gospel brings. War between two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the promised seed of the woman. And no sooner was this promise given than did Satan's rage focus on one thing, and that was crushing the one who is predicted to crush him. We see immediately after in Genesis 4 how the first family was divided by the gospel. Cain killing Abel was Satan's first attempt to destroy the woman's seed. And so God cursed Cain. So for a minute it seems with one son dead and another son cursed that God's promise has failed. It seems the serpent is one. Because the only thing that ultimately came from Cain was a growing civilization marked by sin and death, capped off by his great-great-grandson Lamech, who boasted in his sinful vengeance and of the death that came from it. But beloved, God's word cannot fail. If there is anything that we see from the beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end, beginning in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, going all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, is that God's word cannot fail. Another son was born to Eve named Seth. And in the midst of a dark and perverse generation, Seth and his family called on the name of the Lord. Surrounded as they were by sin and death, God saved some according to the promised covenant of grace. But in the next chapter, chapter 5, what we discover is that Seth, though he believed in the promise was not the promised Messiah. He was not the promised seed. Because like everybody else, Seth died. Satan had not been crushed. His offspring continued to grow. And according to chapter 6, quote, the wickedness of man was so great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. In other words, as humanity multiplied and filled the earth, so did evil. All of it was the consequence of the broken covenant of works. When Adam sinned, sin and death spread to all men, and all men sinned. The wages of sin is death. All men died. And so as a result, God's justice, or rather God's goodness, demands justice. If the thoughts of man's heart is only on evil continually, and man continually acts on the very desires of his heart in evil, then God's goodness demands justice. And so in chapter 7, God's judgment comes. It comes through a cataclysmic flood. Cain's cursed civilization was washed off the face of the earth. But this wasn't ultimately a reset as if God's promises failed. It wasn't God pressing the eject button on one plan and coming up with a new plan. No, through it all, God's covenant of grace, His promise endured. You see, Adam's son Seth died in faith. In the line of Seth's offspring, a man named Lamech was born who trusted God. And that by faith, he named his own son Rest, Because he believed that his son, according to Genesis 5, would bring relief from the curse. His son's name was Rest. We know his son's name is Noah. Though the entire world was destroyed by a flood, the seed of the woman, 
through Seth, through Lamech, in Noah, survived along with his family. Noah survived with a son named Shem, and Shem's offspring later on would be Abraham. And we all know who ultimately came from Abraham, don't we? So even though death held dominion over God's creation, from eternity past, God was committed to protecting and preserving his promised seed who would crush the serpent's head and redeem a people from sin. But then the question becomes, how can God preserve a sin and a death-filled world so that his covenant of grace might be established by the promised seed of the woman? How can God in his justice preserve such a world? Or to put it another way, how can there be anything good at all? The answer, God made a covenant with Noah. I want to consider that together for a few moments this afternoon. If you're able, would you stand with me for the public reading of God's word as we consider God's covenant to Noah. We're going to begin in chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and so she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put his hand out, and he took her, and he brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days, and he sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the, from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And so God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of the man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, 
cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth, As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be any flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth... And the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Our passage neatly breaks up into two sections. We're going to focus primarily in Genesis 9. I read Genesis 8 for context. First, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we're going to see Noah and his family live in a cursed kingdom. A cursed kingdom. Functioning as a kind of second Adam, a new humanity in Noah is given three things in 1 through 7. We're going to see he's given a new creation, a new commission, and a new condition. That new creation, new commission, and new condition is all part of this cursed kingdom in which Noah is placed. And then in verses 8 through 17, we're going to consider a promised preservation. A promised preservation that in the context of a cursed creation, cursed because of the broken covenant of works in Adam, mankind following Noah will be able to fulfill its new commission because of God's covenant. That by his common grace, that is the grace that he gives to all men everywhere, regardless of their spiritual standing before God, God will stabilize and preserve his creation Until the woman's promised seed consummates the covenant of grace in a new creation. A cursed creation and a promised preservation. That's what we're going to see. So if you would put your eyes on verse 1 with me. Let's consider the character of this cursed kingdom. 
The language at the beginning of chapter 9 should sound familiar, or rather chapter 8. I want to consider this just by way of context. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. The language at the beginning of chapter 8 should sound familiar to us because it's the language that's used in the creation account of Genesis 1. The author wants us to see that in the wake of the flood, Noah is a kind of second Adam. He's placed at the center of a new creation. Let me just give you a little bit of context. In Genesis 1, Moses wrote that at the beginning of creation, the spirit or ruach of God was hovering over the deep. But in verse 1 in chapter 8, we see that the same spirit, the ruach, here translated wind, was hovering over or was blowing over the earth. Likewise, in Genesis 1, Moses wrote that there was, quote, darkness over the face of the deep. That was before God made dry land to emerge from the water. But now here in verse 2, we see how he recounts how the fountains of the deep were closed. And then in verse 3, the dry land once again emerging from the water. In Genesis 1, the sea and the dry land were covered with God's creatures who were to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. Well, Moses says the exact same thing happened with Noah. Scan beginning in verse 15 all the way through verse 19 there at the end of chapter 8. You can see how all of the creatures that filled the water and filled the land were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, including humanity. Moses, who's the author, is drawing out these creation parallels in chapter 8 on purpose. Noah was a kind of second Adam. He was the seed of the woman who brought rest to a kind of new creation that he would fill and rule with his own offspring. And so God set Noah over a new creation just like Adam. And this new creation theme is made even more clear than we see at the beginning of chapter 9 in the new commission. So we've seen Adam in a new creation, and now we see at the beginning of chapter 9 a new commission. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see that there in verse 1? Does that sound familiar? What should be obvious to you by now is that Noah is a type of Christ just as he is a type of Adam. That if you were to take Noah and his family and you were to put it into a 3D printer, programming Noah and his family into it, printing a 3D version, it would come out looking like a miniature version of the last Adam and of his family standing over a new creation following a cataclysmic judgment. And that's an important truth. Because Noah and his family weren't ultimately saved by a boat, you see. They were saved by a seed. God's promised covenant of grace to be fulfilled and established by the promised seed of the woman is still intact. But I want you to notice something else. Notice the staggering statement just before chapter 9, all the way back in verse 21 of chapter 8. God says, quote, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That when God destroyed every sinner from the face of the planet, except for Noah and his family, he didn't destroy every sinner. Noah and his family are still, have still been brought forth in iniquity. They were born in sin by nature, children of wrath, apart from God's redeeming grace. And if we follow the the narrative of Noah and his sons, which we'll take a brief look at next week, they prove that they're sinners still. 
And so Noah is a sinner who is inheriting a cursed kingdom. He doesn't get to return to paradise. He doesn't get a fresh paradise. It's not a redo of Adam in the garden. No, he's just a type of Adam. God doesn't make a new covenant of works with Noah, such that if Noah obeys, then life and righteousness will be inherited by all those who are in Noah. No, that covenant of grace was abrogated as soon as Adam broke it. Now the whole world is cursed as a result. That ship has sailed, pun intended. The new humanity from Noah is in Adam. And as such, it cannot be ruled in the same way as Adam's Edenic paradise prior to the fall. To this end, God had to give Noah a new condition, a condition that was not given to Adam. And we see that beginning in verse 2. He says, the fear of you and the dread of you will be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and on everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. And that fear and that dread that Noah and his family and all who had come from him were to exercise over creation is also going to be true from one man to the other in the context of civilizations that are developed. That's what we see in verses 5 through 7 of retributive justice. And so when he says, for instance, fear and dread there in verse 2, fear and dread being over the animals, what he's not talking about, Ryan Adams, is hunters striking fear into the heart of the animals that he wants to kill and eat. Little cute animals. Little bambies and thumpers. The language of verse 2 is the language of authority. Noah is going to have to rule a cursed creation imperfectly by the sword. The Apostle Paul uses the exact same language that we find in verse 2 in Romans 13. Borrows the same language. Listen to this. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The foundation for Paul's teaching on God's purpose for civil government in Romans 13 is Genesis 9. Of these principles of retributive justice, of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and of sin being restrained by the reality of the fear and the dread that comes by the sword. That God not only renewed the culture binding or culture building mandate with mankind, that is, be fruitful and, and multiply and fill the earth, but he also laid down universal laws for justice. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so under the Noahic covenant, human society, that is this new humanity from Noah, ruling imperfectly without perfect dominion, because now death and sin has dominion, This new humanity had two basic and related jobs as it formed civilization together. 
to preserve life and to preserve families. Follow along with me. Every single society, according to the Noahic Covenant, should promote human fruitfulness and multiplication. That is what God commanded mankind to do. And that multiplication takes place in the context of families. This is the most basic constitution of human society, is the family according to God's design. So I want you to think about it this way. Different countries have different constitutions of similar founding documents, something that constitutes their life together. And so Genesis 9 teaches us that there is no more fundamental constitution by which all human societies are to govern than that of the Noahic Covenant. It's the most foundational aspect of the foundation of human civilization. Of there is a God who rules and reigns, who created us, to whom, upon whom we are dependent in every way, and to whom we are finally accountable. And we do not have the privilege to exercise rule, to exercise the sword in any way that he himself is not authorized. And that's exactly what he's done here. And so every single human society in this kingdom, this cursed kingdom of creation, fallen in Adam, stabilized and preserved in Noah, every human society is accountable to this covenant. It mandates that every society obey the commission to be fruitful and to multiply. That's what we see in verse 1. And in verses 2 through 7, that every human society would do so by promoting, preserving, and protecting the life of both individuals and of the family. We are obligated, not merely as Christians, but of mankind made in the image of God, are obligated by God to enforce justice by punishing the wicked, that is notably putting murderers to death, eye for an eye, but also that every society should aim, according to God's common grace, to protect families, that families might grow and multiply and fill the earth according to God's commission. I'm sorry, but, according to, but, but contrary to the creation alarmists, to the cultural alarmists, to the, to the climate alarmists, rather. I knew it was a C. Contrary to the climate alarmists, and according to God's commands, the earth cannot be overpopulated. And to assume that it can be such that as one recent scholar made headlines this last week, that maybe the elderly in Japan should consider ritual suicide for the sake of depopulation is not only contrary to God's word, but is high-handed treason against God. We are obligated to enforce justice by punishing the wicked, and we are obligated to protect families, that families might grow and multiply and fill the earth, because that is what God has commissioned mankind to do. And civil government, when individuals do not have authorization from God to undermine, oppose, or reverse that commission. And so any government or society or any political party that aims to undermine or destroy God's design for the family or that murders the innocent 
rather than exacting justice against murderers, is a government that is in direct treason and disobedience to God. God gave civil governments the sword according to his covenant with Noah as a means of fear to punish evil and reward good. But a truly corrupted government will use the sword instead as a means of fear for punishing good and rewarding evil. And God will execute his vengeance against every wicked ruler according to the conditions of the Noahic covenant. Noah was given a new creation with a new commission. Just as Adam was given a commission, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But this commission was given in the context of a cursed kingdom ruled by sin and death. And so God had to make a condition, a principle of retributive justice to restrain evil from reaching pre-flood proportions ever again and to stabilize and to preserve the world until every last one of his gospel promises are fulfilled. We know that the world cannot end one millisecond before all of God's promises are fulfilled because God made a covenant with Noah. And that covenant promises preservation. So we just saw in verses 1 through 7, a cursed kingdom. And in that cursed kingdom given to Noah is a new creation, a new commission, and a new condition. Beginning in verse 8 now, we're going to see a promised preservation. And like any other covenant, we're going to see that there are parties in the covenant, that there are promises in the covenant, and we're going to see who fulfills the obligations that is to fulfill those promises. Consider, first of all, the parties. Notice, beginning in verse 8, as you just scan all the way through verse 17, all throughout the section, in every single verse but one, the parties of the covenant are repeated over and over and over again. Man in a sinful state is hard of hearing and short of memory. And so God, like a loving father, repeats himself again and again and again. And he makes it clear that this covenant expands from Noah to his family, to all of mankind, and to all flesh that is on the earth for generations. So like the covenant of works with Adam, this covenant is made with all of creation. It is a creation covenant made in the context of Adam's broken covenant of works. It is a covenant of common grace as we're about to see, whereby God will restrain sin and preserve his creation, preventing sin from having its fullest effect in human society so that, all, so that God might bring all of his gospel promises to bear. And that's what we see beginning in verse 11 in God's promise. He says there that he'll never again cut off all flesh. It'll never be cut off again by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. As in any other covenant, God is the one making the promise here. In verse 11, he promises that the world won't be wiped out by a flood ever again. God is committed to preserving his creation. But this promise of preservation is set against the backdrop, the background of God's promise of stabilization. Look back at the end of chapter 8 once again. 
One of God's intentions in promising to preserve life, to never destroy life again in the same way, is to establish then the continuation of seasons and natural processes and And life in general is going to continue, as we see there in the end of chapter 8, verse 22, life in general is going to continue in a stable, predictable, recurring cycle whereby the sun is going to shine, the rains are going to fall, man is going to be able to plant and sow and reap and survive in spite of the creation being cursed. And so God promises, chapter 9, verse 11, to preserve his cursed creation. And one of the ways that he's going to preserve his cursed creation that we see there at the end of verse chapter 8 is he's going to stabilize his creation from the full effects of sin, ultimately for the sake of his gospel promises. But I want you to notice something else about this covenant. Not only is God promising to preserve creation, and not only is he promising to preserve it by virtue of stabilization, by stabilizing creation, but also this covenant is unconditional. God alone will be the one that fulfills the terms of the covenant. We see this in verses 15 and 16 in that language, never again and everlasting. That God is going to keep his promise to preserve life and to stabilize his creation. Noah's obedience or disobedience to the covenant, which is going to come quickly after. Nor our obedience or our own disobedience has any bearing on the fulfillment of this covenant. This covenant can never be nullified. It can never be removed. It can never be undermined. It can never be thrown off track by our own sin or disobedience from now until the end of human history. That is what is meant in the text by everlasting. As long as this current cursed creation exists, nothing will annul this covenant. That means, as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, that for every generation until the end of the age, God, quote, makes his son to rise and his reign to fall on both the just and the unjust alike. In other words, he dispenses common grace. The wages of sin is death. You know what we don't deserve? Sun and rain, much less all of the fruitfulness that comes from it. And yet God dispenses that undeserved favor on all men alike everywhere in spite of their spiritual standing before God because he promised to do so according to the covenant with Noah. It's why many theologians refer to the Noahic covenant as the common grace covenant. It's God committing himself to the preservation of humanity and of his cursed creation until all of his gospel promises are fulfilled according to his common or universal Grace. And that grace to all men everywhere ultimately serves the covenantal purpose of preservation and stabilization. Finally, notice that as a sign and a seal of this covenant, God designates the rainbow as a visible sign of his promise. In verse 13, God, at least in my translation, hopefully it does in yours as well, God calls it his bow. Throughout the Old Testament, God's bow is an image that speaks of his retributive justice. That God will fight for his people and he will preserve them by judging his enemies. This means that every single time God sees a rainbow, not because he needs reminding, this is all 
anthropomorphic language, anthropopathic language. In other words, language that is brought down, cookies on the bottom shelf in human terms that we might be able to understand God's eternal immutable decree, even in the way that he interacts with us as his creation, that we are to be reminded not only of the positive commitment of God to never flood the earth again, but much more than that, we are reminded of his ultimate promise that though judgment has not yet come against his enemies, judgment is coming. God's bow is drawn. And though he has not yet let it go, and though many may scoff at God, thinking that if judgment has not yet come, then judgment ain't ever going to come. His bow is drawn. And at his appointed time, he will let his arrow fly to the destruction of his enemies. And so as bad as the world gets, as alarmist as the scientists and the government officials may get, every time we see the refraction of light in the clouds forming a bow, we're reminded of the principle of retributive justice implanted in the Noahic covenant and of how it points ultimately to God's fullest and final justice at the end of the age. An eye for an eye. God will judge, and he's good to do it. And so his bow is drawn. God will judge his enemies, just as he did in the flood. And Noah and his family were saved through judgment. And so will we be. That's the Noahic covenant. It's God's covenant of common grace with the world, despite mankind's depravity, to sustain its order until the consummation of all of God's gospel promises. In other words, it's the covenant foundation for God's common grace. It's the means whereby he stabilizes and preserves his creation to bring about all of his gospel promises, the promise of this one covenant of grace through Abraham, via Israel, narrowed in David, and fulfilled in Christ, who has come and is coming again. God will preserve his creation until that day. He's promised. All of this has some theological and some practical implications for us. First, Noah's redemptive role, if you hadn't picked up on it already, makes Noah a type of Christ. Or to put it another way, God's saving of Noah's family through the flood is like a trailer for a feature film. Think about it. Movie trailers are movies in miniature. They're not the movie... But they ultimately show us what the movie is going to be like. God's judgments in history work that way. A worldwide flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues in the Red Sea, all of them are miniaturized pictures of a greater exodus whereby God will ultimately save his people through judgment. They're all trailers of a feature film yet to come. Noah's new creation is like the trailer of that feature. That's how the Apostle Peter reads Genesis, don't you know? Keep a finger in Genesis 9. 
And I want you to turn with me to the end of your Bibles to the second Peter, Peter's second letter. Second Peter chapter three. How do the apostles read Genesis 9? I want to suggest that Peter is not reading Genesis 9 in the way that many of our children's Bibles read Genesis 9. Some of you need to go home and you need to throw out some children's Bibles. Because what we see is that that the, the flood and of God's covenant to Noah is not a precious moment. With Noah smiling and of happy animals... It is the levee breaking and flooding the city and only one family remaining and making their way through floodwaters filled with floating carcasses and death everywhere. Such that Noah will never get the sight of God's judgment out of his mind ever again. This is how severe the day of the Lord will be and then some for those who do not Turn and trust in Christ. Second Peter 3. In verses 1 through 4, the apostle scoffs at scoffers. They're all saying that God's promise has failed. They look around and they say, everything's just like it's always been ever since the beginning of the world. Judgment's not coming. If it was going to come, it should have come already. Judgment hasn't come. And if it hasn't come now... If it's not going to come when the world has been the way that it is for so long, then let's be real about it. Judgment's never coming. Does that sound like a familiar argument? Peter responds in verse 5. He says, They deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water by the word of God, and that by means of these, that is by means of water in the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's he talking about? Genesis 7, 8, and 9. He's talking about the flood. But by the same word, the same word that commanded the waters to flood the earth, by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And then Peter says in verses 8 through 10 that God doesn't see things like we do. You and I are trapped in time and history. We can only see things in succession, and we conclude that if judgment hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen. But God sees everything at once. And when everybody is off their guard, according to God's decree, in verse 10, God's judgment is going to come like a thief. You're not going to see it coming, and it's going to take everything. Everything that is but one thing. God's judgment is going to sweep over the whole earth and it's going to take everything but Noah and his family, so to speak. Everything but a second Adam and his offspring. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening, as if on an ark, in judgment, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, 
The same word that commands judgment is the same word that makes promises. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's judgment is going to come like a flood came on the earth. It is going to consume everything. And the only thing that is going to remain on the earth is going to be a last Adam and all of his offspring in a new creation, given a new commission to rule with Christ forever. That's what Peter's talking about. He's saying, you can't say that God hasn't judged and you can't say that he's been silent on what's going to happen. He has given you a three-dimensional prophecy in a worldwide flood and of the setting of a type of a second Adam and his family over a new creation that they might rule a new humanity in that new creation. All of that, he's saying, was God speaking in history, through types, that you might know how God is going to fulfill his covenant of grace in the ultimate seed of the woman, the greater Noah, and of his church, the greater Noahic family, saved by Christ, waiting for that day. That's what we see. And as we're waiting for that day, as Noah and his family waited on the ark, waiting for the consummation of God's promised salvation through judgment. We're to be people who are growing in, according to verse 11, holiness and godliness. That just like the crowds in Noah's day, the world's going to scoff at us. Peter says, let them scoff. Our aim, verse 14, is to distinguish ourselves from the world. To be, verse 14, found by him without spot or blemish. And at peace, because though it may not seem like we've been in this stinky ark forever, just like Noah was, verse 15, we count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So the first implication was this, Noah's redemptive role makes him a type of Christ. It is the unfolding of God's promised covenant of grace, his one plan of redemption across the whole of the scriptures, step by step by step, such that we're able to see in Noah a pattern or a picture of Christ and the new humanity over a new creation after judgment. And we see in that covenant, God's promise to preserve and to stabilize the creation until all of those promises are consummated once and for all. And we can take his word to the bank he's promised. But secondly, it gives us assurance. We live in a day full of all kinds of alarmists. Those who have countdown clocks of Climate alarmists that say that we only have so much time until we've used up all of the earth's resources and we doom ourselves to an apocalyptic end. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. On the one hand, Christians above all should be good stewards of God's creation. We shouldn't be wasteful. We should be mindful. We should aim to steward and be productive as we're able with whatever God has put in our charge. And yet, on the other hand, let us as Christians never fall into the silly idea that the world is going to come to an end before God has decreed its end. He has promised in his covenant to Noah 
that he will preserve and stabilize this creation beyond all of the alarming warnings of culture or of climate extremists and of world governments clamoring together to save the planet none of it will have any effect until god pulls the string on his bow it assures us that god will preserve and stabilize this world until every last gospel promise is fulfilled and we can take God's word to the bank so we don't get unsettled in the way that those who have no hope in Christ do. We don't get anxious about the end of the world. No, for us, we count the patience of our Lord as salvation and we welcome that day when it comes like an ark landing on dry ground. We're home. Saved through judgment, it gives us assurance. Thirdly, it compels us to love everyone, even our enemies. Consider Matthew chapter 5. I told you already, Noah's, the covenant that God made with Noah is commonly referred to as a common grace covenant, whereby God is gracious to give to all men everywhere what they do not deserve so that he might preserve life and stabilize the creation. Jesus picks up on that same theme and it tells us something about God's character. Matthew chapter 5 verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, coincidentally, whenever you think you have sound doctrine and the Lord Jesus Christ says, but I say to you, you're in big trouble. It's time to reform your doctrine. But I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Now, what do we know about our Father in heaven? What do we know about him? Verse 45, he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Do you remember what we saw at the end of Genesis 8? Listen, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night, sun and rain. Our Father makes all of it to fall, not just on the good, but the evil as well. And sends rain, not just on the just, but on the unjust. He says, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That language of perfection is not referring to you better be as righteous as God is righteous, though it is commending holiness. It's not telling you that you are saved by your own righteousness. No, what it's saying is that your love for your neighbor must be as perfect as God's love for his neighbor is, so to speak, including his enemies. He says, what is the basis then for you loving your enemy? Jesus 
using the, the framework of the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9 says, because God loves his enemies. Paul calls us in Romans 5 that we were enemies of God. And yet consider God's great grace to us in Christ. Jesus says, what's the basis then of, of neighbor love? Even when our neighbor makes himself or herself our enemy, because that's how God loves. And his love is perfect. That is complete. That is without partiality and without exception. And if you want to imitate God, that's how you have to love. You love in a Noahic covenant kind of way. To the just and the unjust. To the good and the evil. And though that may not always look like practical love of going near others that are dangerous, who would seek you harm. Did you notice what Jesus says in verse 44? It says at the very least, what does it look like? It looks like praying for them. Even if you can physically meet the needs of those who would aim to hurt you or even kill you for the gospel's sake, at the very least, you can pray for them. Ask God to continue his kindness on them that their life might be preserved. And in the patience of God in preserving their life, they might be brought to repentance and faith in the gospel. And so it teaches us how to love everybody, even our enemies. Fourthly and finally, it helps us to understand the role of civil government. Civil government is a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. It makes for a great servant, but an awful savior. When we look to the civil government to do what God alone is called to do. And yet at the same time, God has instituted civil government as his servant to stabilize. That is to restrain the effects of sin through just laws. Through the punishing of evildoers, through, just retribu or through retributive justice. Through the rewarding of good, that is that you may live without fear. All of that is ways that God is stabilizing his creation and of human civilization and society in this common kingdom, in this kingdom of creation that is yet cursed by sin until all of his gospel promises are fulfilled. But the purpose of every government, as we saw in Genesis 9, is to do no less than two things. It is most fundamentally to preserve life and it is to protect the family. And we have a moral obligation as Christians to oppose any civil magistrate that would aim to legalize or to justify the unjust killing of the innocent or would aim to undermine and even destroy through wicked policy the family as God has designed it. For some of you, that may look like one day putting yourself in a position to do much good in political office. As you aim to, to serve your neighbor in the imperfect civil government in which we exist through the wise application of God's moral law, which always serves our neighbor the best. For some of us, it looks like, for most of us, it looks like the way that we vote. Our culture has shifted fast. Things that 10 years ago I would have considered to be a mostly conscientious issue 
mostly gray, is becoming more black and white by the day. When you have, for instance, a political party and the Democratic Party, and I never do this from the pulpit, and so I want you to receive it this way. I, I talk about these things with great fear of ever wrongly binding you to what God does not bind you to. I do it with great fear and attention. I want to grant you freedom in everything that God's word grants you freedom. And so I'm saying this with a little bit of trepidation. But when you have a single political party that is entirely united in its platform to the unjust murder of innocence and to the destruction of the family as God has designed it through unjust LGBTQ laws. I see no biblical justifi- biblically justifiable way for a Bible-believing evangelical Christian to cast a vote for any candidate in that party. Now hear what I'm not saying. I'm not telling you who then you must vote for. That is still yet a prudential issue. Is it the other party? Is it a third party? Is it a no vote? Is it, we need lots of wisdom moving forward in those things. I'm not binding you to vote for a certain candidate, but what I am saying is that as we go to the ballots, as we consider our own role in civil government, we have to take very seriously the reality of what God has authorized civil government to do, that is the preservation of the family and the protection of life, and we must actively oppose by the means that we have been given according to God's providence to oppose any ruler or any government that would aim to take away life unjustly, especially of the innocent and of those who would aim to destroy and undermine God's design for the family. And according to the Noahic Covenant, Beloved, I don't think we have a choice. Now, I'm not omniscient. There may be yet some way out there, some biblical, biblically justifiable way, some prudential reason to vote for a candidate within that particular party. But I've not heard it. And I can't think of it. And I'm not going to tell you how you should vote otherwise. But I want God's vision for civil government, according to the Noahic covenant, to be so impressed on your minds and your hearts and of your love for justice to be so great, according to God's law, that any candidate or any party, right or left, blue or red or otherwise, that is committed to the unjust taking of life, and to the undermining of the foundation of all society, God's design for the family, that those things would trigger your gag reflex. And that we would be a people who aim for righteousness. Why? Because that's what it looks like to love our neighbor. Are there a hundred thousand other policies that need to be considered? Yes. Are there lots of other considerations from immigration to economy and 
and other things that have to be taken in. Are those hard and complicated gray area things? Yes, they are. But let me tell you what is not gray. Ten years ago, there were all kinds of candidates in the Democratic Party that were pro-life, that were incrementalists in terms of abortion, that were protectors, at least in word of God's design for traditional nuclear family and society. This is just 10 years ago. And that small number has utterly evaporated. It's not politically expedient to be any of those and remain in that particular party. And so friends, I'll tell you again, and like I said, I tell you with great fear of ever binding you to what the Bible doesn't bind you to. I'm not telling you who then you must vote for. But I am telling you what you cannot approve of. And what we are as God's people to actively oppose according to the means that God has providentially given us. And yet we do all of this ultimately not because our hope is in reforming the government. We do all of this ultimately because we count God's patience as salvation. That we might so place ourselves in the lives of our neighbors, that we might so commend the righteousness of his law, that many would be brought to the conviction of their sin and repentance and would throw themselves on the mercy of God in Christ, trusting in him for the salvation of their sins. God's bow is drawn still, and he has not let that arrow fly. And there is still yet another day where those who are dead in Adam, residing in a, in a kingdom that has been cursed by sin, to be led by God's great grace according to the gospel to repent and believe in Christ. Which tells us finally, our obligation is to share the gospel often. God has given us yet another day in his patience that all of his elect would be called out by the gospel and he's allowing us as a church to participate in that. In our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and all over the world. If you have any questions about anything that I just said, you can email Matt. <laughs> he would love to have that conversation with you. What I want to, what I want to compel us to is to take seriously God's word on these matters and to aim to conform ourselves to it even as the culture around us changes so fast. It can be dizzying. But though the grass wither and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray.